Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We love you for just giving this word to us, Lord. That it guides us, it sheds light onto our path, it directs us, it refreshes us, Lord, and it brings us a life. And so, Lord, we ask that you will speak to us again this evening. Please be with me. Holy Spirit, empower me. Please be with my brothers and sisters also, that you will, ref that you will refresh them and that you will also uh, speak to them personally and intimately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tonight's message is entitled, Where's the Band? Now those who came on time went through a time of singing. And I'm just wondering, did anyone question, how come we did it that way? Did you ask, where's the band? Because we sang a cappella just now. And I will tell you that I struggled a little bit. Did anyone feel a little bit difficult? Yeah, I was like um, not used to it. But some were okay, and so that's good. But let me just introduce myself to you, that I've always grown up in a musical environment all my life. Although I didn't get to meet my grandfather, he passed away when my dad was um, still very, very young. I'm told that he was an accomplished composer. My grandmother herself, she was a soprano. I learned music from an early age. And from that point on, I was involved in choirs and then in the church, I was involved in music. And it was in my teenage years that I discovered its beauty of uh, the music and began composing, began performing, began um, arranging music. After that, I served in and I led in uh, worship teams. And even today, I really enjoy playing the keyboards and making music for the Lord. Now, why am I sharing all these things with you? The point is simply this. I understand music. And I know the power and the importance of this element or this gift that God has given to all of us and the role that it plays in the life of a believer. But tonight, my challenge to all of us is that we consider if we have but perhaps elevated music above the worship of who Jesus might be. You know, sometimes we depend so much on music and together with its accompaniment. Of course, we call that worship today. And whenever we say worship, we would almost link it with this word called music. And as music and the songs we sing with its accompanying accessories like lights, ambience, performance, dance, AV, have all these things become worship to many of us? Just ponder that for a while. When I was running the school of ministry, we would hold this event called a silent retreat. And I told the students that when you go for this silent retreat, you're not allowed to bring anything other than your Bible and your journal. And then they looked at me like as if, you know, Third World War started already. The end of days have begun, the beginning of sorrows. And one by one, they would come to me. Every batch, without fail, there would be at least one person who would ask this question. Can I bring my CD player? Can I listen to CD music? I say, why do you want to do that? So I can worship, was the answer. Or do you do your quiet time this time, but you need YouTube? Without YouTube, you cannot do quiet time. Can you see the role and the place of music 
that has become so important to us. And today we have this emergence of this term called soaking music. Have you heard of this? That we need the music to soak into this kind of music to get into the presence of God. Now, I'm not saying all these things are not good. I'm just asking you to consider this tonight. Let me also confess my own discomfort when I was ministering in a place. And when the time came for me to call a response, the people came up and there was no music team. There was no worship leader. And for a while, you know, I was like, what am I going to do? You know, um, it's so quiet. It's so uncomfortable. It's just the silence was deafening. And I had to tell myself and remind myself that it's okay, just pray. And God came through. Have we reached a stage where we don't know how to worship God without these aids? This is my question for us. And that's why I've entitled this message called, Where's the Band? And we started this evening without one. Sometimes we think God needs the right music, the right lights, the right mood. And then he can be choreographed to dance in. We are still in the book of Matthew. And we are going to explore Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and 1 to 12 all over again. But this time we're going to look through a very different lens. And we know that the Magi possibly did not travel alone. But who were those who traveled with them? Tonight we want to ask, did they bring their worship team along? Did they bring their musicians did they bring their roadies? Did they bring all their sound system and all their sound equipment? If not, then how did they worship? What did worship involve for them and what did worship do for them? We're going to look into this topic of worship through the lens using Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 all over again. But before that, let's do some foundational teaching first. What is worship literally, this word? I've given you three words here on the screen. One is Hebrew, one is Greek, and one is the old Anglo-Saxon. The Hebrew word shakha means to bow down, to fall prostrate. And that's what to worship means, literally. The word proskuneo is a combination of two words, pros meanings, meaning towards, and kuneo meaning to kiss or to adore. So you're moving towards someone to display adoration. So translated, it means to show respect, to honor, and it also means to fall or to prostrate before. In other words, to even fall at someone's feet, even to kiss the person's feet. And that's why we have this English expression, right? You would kiss the ground this person walks on or even kiss his feet. But we get our English word worship from the old Anglo-Saxon, worship. And that means to attribute worth to someone or to something. That something is worthy of your attention. If you look into the New King James Bible, you will find that this word worship is mentioned in various forms 197 times across 186 verses. I did an interesting exercise. I went to the first mention of worship. So you look up the concordance, it's easy. You search nowadays in your Bible software. And we find it in Genesis chapter 22. We know this story very well. It's about Abraham sacrificing Isaac. 
So in verse 5, Abraham tells the two young men, he says, you stay here. The lad or the young, person, the, 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 the young boy and I, we will go yonder and worship. That's the very first time this word is used. I believe this is not the first time worship was given, but the word worship was used here in Genesis 22, verse 5. And we will visit this again in a little while. But I find it very apt that the first mention of worship should be recorded with Abraham, our father of faith. And the very last time it's mentioned, it's in Revelation chapter 22 also, in verse 9. And here the angel tells John, please don't worship me. Because John fell at the feet of the angel. The angel said, please, you know, worship should not be given to me. Worship God. So right at the end of the Bible, we find that, that there's a reminder, perhaps even a warning to all of us. That however attractive or charismatic a messenger of God might be, we are not to worship that being or that person. We are still to worship God. I find that interesting because today, there is such a temptation to worship uh, powerful, powerful speakers and messengers of God. So with that as a foundation, I want to look at seven aspects of worship through Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And here you know as we're doing something that's expository, we are using the text to share something with us. And I believe that we can learn seven things about worship and apply this even into our own understanding of worshipping Jesus, understanding His kingdom, and in the context of having our assignments. The first thing about worship we learn is that it involves expectation and desire. Worship must come with expectation and desire. We read in verses 1 and 2, after Jesus was born, the wise men came and this was what they said. Where is he? You know, there was this expectation, a desire to, to meet this king. Where is he? We have seen the star. We have come. I mean, if you just take these three little passages together. Where is he? We have seen something. We have come. You know, can you, can you see that there's this sense of desire? There's this sense of expectation? There's this sense of hunger to meet the king. And I wonder whether when we go to church on Sunday to a worship service, do we carry that same desire? Do we come with that same expectation? Where we come into uh, the sanctuary and we're like, Lord, where are you? I really got to meet with you today. First, uh, a young Christian, or when, when you first encountered Jesus in a very, very personal way, how was it? You worship Jesus in a different way then. Am I right? But over time, sometimes we can get used to the things. We can get familiar with the rituals. We can get familiar with the regulations. We can get familiar even with the order of worship. And so we know it starts with this. It goes on to that. You know, we move on to something else. And after this, we have offering. And then comes the message and we have benediction and we go home. We lose the expectation. We lose the desire. Everything becomes a routine and after a while it becomes even a drudgery. And yet we call it a worship. How do we worship God? I'm as guilty as anyone here if we would admit that. 
that because of the tensions of life, the pressures of life, you know, and, and it just saps that energy away from us. And we go to God and we're like, okay, worship. Lah. This is what Christians do on Sundays anyway, so we just come. Don't lose the childlike wonder that comes with a childlike faith that used to marvel at the greatness of God. And when I was preparing this, I remember one um, outing that our family went to. Do you know where this is? It's been closed for a while. But this is called the Battlestar Galactica at the Universal Studios. I think they're going to tear it down. When we first went to Universal Studios, the very first time, I mean, it was that the children, I mean, they were all just filled with wonder, right? I was like, wow, this, wow, that. It was so exciting and all that. Then when we got onto the Battlestar Galactica and we sat on it, that's me, by the way. There's a photo to prove it. Not only did we go up once, we went up twice. And I think the children went up quite a few times. But the first time it was like, wow, whoa, you know what I mean? It was exciting, you know, it was exhilarating, you know, it was, it was so fun. And after a few times, they come back and like, uh, okay lah. And now you tell them, shall we go to Universal Studios? Um, okay lah. Why? Because they've lost that sense of wonder. Are you following? And if we look at little children, we, we can learn a lot from them. You see, how is our worship, my friends? It comes... There's an element of expectation. There's an element of, of, of desire. And really, we are to be lost in wonder of our God. We are not to lose the wonder of our God. And I think that's why many times when we go for a camp or when we go for a retreat or we go for an encounter weekend, there's something special there because maybe we pay to go. Maybe we make time to go. Maybe we, we, we push ourselves to be there and we title it called Encounter Weekend. So we are expecting an encounter that when we come together, there is, a, there is such a hunger in all the people and when we worship beyond the singing that we do, there is such a manifest presence of God. And I keep telling the people, I said, this is what you experience here, but don't be disappointed because let's be real, when you get back, you don't get the same thing. Why? Because we don't have the expectation and we have lost the desire. The second thing about worship that we see from the Magi, we see in verse 5. And worship involves the Scriptures. The worship of God involves the Word of God. In verse 5, they told him, and this is the religious leaders, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written. See, many times we look at worship and we think it's the first segment of a service where we sing a few songs and we feel all emotional about that. That's nice. But do you know that the preaching of the Word, the study of the Word, the exposition of the Word was so important and so integral as a part of the worship that for Israel, when they came back from exile, the temple was already built for quite a few years. And the Bible records that after that, Ezra was sent back. For what reason? 
Ezra was a skilled scribe. He was an expert in the Word of God. And he was sent back so that he can teach the Word of God. And after he teaches the Word of God, the people worships with the Word of God. I mean, the temple had already you know, been, been reinstituted with all its rituals and all its systems and everything, all its sacrifices. I mean, that's worship to them. Well, it's fine, you know? They had all their psalmists and they would sing their songs. But I said, no, it's not complete without the Word of God. And the challenge for us and the question for us also is, if you are going to church week after week, or you are buying the latest worship CD, but you are not reading and you're not understanding your Bible, can I suggest to you, your worship is incomplete. But today, worship has become such an industry that when we use that word, we think immediately about the stage, about the band, about the songs, about the sound. We hardly consider Bible study worship. Do you know that you're here tonight, we are worshipping? Because we are getting into the Word of God and the Word of God is worship. And as I read on in verse 8, I found that Herod the Great gave great advice. He told the Magi, go and search carefully for the young child. Unknown to him. I think there's something prophetic in his, in his statement. And if Jesus today, as we know that He is the living Word, Herod was really saying, go and search carefully the living Word. Herod was not interested. He didn't want to search. He wanted others to do the searching and then come back to Him so that He says, no, you let me know so I can go and worship Him. And there are a lot of people in the church today like that. They don't want to read their Bible. They don't want to search their scriptures. They don't want to know anything about the Word. It says, you go study then you come and teach me. We can't worship in proxy. Herod didn't want to search the Scriptures. The religious leaders searched the Scriptures. That's what it says in John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. Jesus looked at them and said, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me but you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I mean, is this describing Matthew 2 or what? They knew the Scriptures. They searched the Scriptures. They could tell Herod about the Scriptures, but they did nothing to go to Jesus. Years later, Jesus would tell them, you, you do your Bible study, but you refuse to come to me. The Scriptures always reveal Jesus. And that's why when we worship through the study of Scriptures, it's not that we worship the intellect that it gives to us. We worship the life that it brings through Christ. If we do not search the Scriptures, how do we know if our worship that we engage in, whether that's biblical or whether it's rightly directed, in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it's recorded that the Bereans were for more fair-minded than, the th than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all readiness. So it's not just about receiving the word. They searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Because they want their worship of God to be accurate, to be correct, to be unadulterated. How's our worship? In the Word. 
I like the quote by A.W. Tozer. And I think he does it really very cutely when he says, Christians don't tell lies. They just go to church and sing them. And I chose this quote because of the word singing, you know, and sometimes we, we think, oh, we sing enough, you know. And singing is good, but it doesn't mean that we believe or we obey what we sing. Case in point, I surrender all. Yeah? Should be changed to I surrender some. The lyrics help us to remember and to express, but it does not mean that we are convicted to act upon it. And so sometimes, whilst the, the, the vehicle or the method is good, that as we sing, we will remember it, that in itself could also be deceptive for us to think we know and that we are okay. So songs are a good start to know the Word, but it does not replace the careful study of the Word. Now, just in case some of you think, I cannot worship when I study theology. So, theology. How to worship when I have theology? Sounds so boring. Even that word sounds heavy. You go read your epistles. Paul always starts with theology. And as he declares theology and explains theologies and teaches theology, he finds himself, as he writes, he breaks out into worship. He breaks out into doxology. He breaks out into praise. Oh, thanks be to God for the indescribable gift. Oh, unto Him who is able to save us. You know? Why? How? Theology. Is it possible that it is because we don't know our theology, that's why we need something else to help us to worship? Worship involves the Word. The third thing that worship brings for us all is that there is exceedingly great joy when we understand worship. The Magi saw the star and they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. I mean, this phrasing is like a, it's like a double emphasis. It's like saying, I have a cylindrical cylinder. They, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Exclamation mark, 20 times. In Greek, of course. Now, if you think about the Magi as they traveled, we already explored this, that one theory is that the star was there all the way and all they needed to do was just hook on their GPS, their camel GPS to the star, and they moved. But I don't think that was the case. It was more likely the star appeared, they saw it was there, and they moved towards it. And the star could have gone off until the right time again when they came up and suddenly the star comes up again and then it is there. And regardless how tired they were, whether they were jet-lagged or not, they rejoiced. And I think there's a lesson here for us that there are times where all we see, perhaps like the Magi, is the dark night of the soul. All you see is, is black. It's just dark. St. John's of the Cross, right? He says this. You know? there, is the, there, is a, there are times where it's just dark. You sing all you want, you read the Bible all you want, you pray all you want, you fast all you want, and nothing seems to happen. 
How do you make sense of all these things? Maybe you are going through a very difficult portion of your journey and everything looks bleak and all that. How do we understand worship in that time? I think that's where the Bible gives us stories of, of David, the psalmist, and all the other psalms and their experiences. That in their darkest moments, the most difficult times, they recount the works, the wonders of God, and they stand upon His Word and His faithfulness. And using that, they continue to worship God. You don't use your present circumstances to worship God. You look at all these signs that point to Jesus, that point to God, and you rejoice with exceedingly great joy knowing His faithfulness and knowing that He will come through still for you. I like to remind myself always that it's not whether you feel like worshipping or not. Because if we understand worship for what it is, God is worthy of worship at all times. All times. Now you might think, oh, it's easy for you to say that. I mean, look, we have up times. I have my down times. And so do you. We look at the Bible writers. We look at the stories that are there. They didn't have it easy all the time. And yet they would break out with spontaneous worship and praise. The most famous, I suppose we know, is found in Job chapter 1, verse 21, when he was struck with that, that terrible condition, not understanding where it came from, why it happened. You know, he was, he was as devout as he possibly could be. He was as righteous as he, he, he wanted to be. And then he says, As naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, worship is not based on who we are, what we go through. Worship is rightly directed and based on who God is. And we have to ask ourselves, have we discovered that wonder of God, that awe of God, holding that deep within our hearts, that He is worthy of worship regardless of what we are going through? Talking about great joy, you don't wait for great joy so that you can worship. You worship so that you will have great joy. You want to say amen? Right? We don't worship because we have, uh, uh, just because we have great joy and that's because I can worship. I know it makes it easier. But we worship that we can have great joy. You look at Paul and Silas and Philippi singing and praising in the dungeons. Great joy that was bubbling from within. Later on, Paul would write to the Philippians again from another dungeon with these words that we glibly quote today, perhaps on Instagram, on Facebook. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. As I was preparing this message, this morning, I saw an update on Facebook. And there's this person whose face, I'm not sure if you recognize him. His name is Andrew Chan. He's one of those who was executed this morning. Member, one of the Bali Nine, who was caught trafficking drugs, placed in jail, sentenced to death. And now there's a big hoo-ha between the two countries. 
But it's told that when he was in prison, he accepted the Lord. He became a Christian. One of the Indonesians that worked in Singapore as a pastor got to know him, ministering in the prisons, got to know him. And when he found out he was going to be executed, he proposed to her and she married him, knowing that he, would, he might be very likely be executed. And so a friend of mine knows, has met him and knows him and um, said, let's pray for him. But here was another Facebook post that quoted his comment. It says, when I got back to my cell, I said, God, I asked you to free me, not kill me. God spoke to me and said, Andrew, I have set you free from the inside out. I have given you life. From that moment on, I haven't stopped worshipping him. I had never sung before, never led worship until Jesus set me free. And this person put in a Facebook post, he has three more hours to sing. Now you go back and you read the reports that all of them chose to face the execution squad without their blindfolds. And they sang Amazing Grace together. And the, the chorus of Amazing Grace was only stopped by the sound of the gunfire that executed them. Where do you find such strength? Would you agree it's the joy of the Lord? And I know it's easy for us to sermonize this and to talk about it. But until we are there, I think we don't fully understand what it really means. And so, friends, worship is not just singing and making music and all that, that we will find and derive great joy through that. That's one aspect. But if you broaden your understanding of worship, that if you are serving the Lord and you are on assignment for Him and doing the Father's will, is that not worship? And if you count that as worship and regard that as worship, then in your work for Jesus, in whatever you are doing, God can give you great joy. See, many times we grumble in the work we do and hope to go to church and sing and feel much better. But if worship is about exceedingly great joy and worship is about ascribing worth, then whatever I'm doing, however tired I am, whatever struggles I'm going through, if I'm doing this for the glory of Jesus Christ, I derive great joy. The fourth aspect about worship is that it involves humility and submission. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, going into the house, the Magi saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped him. Now, there are many verses in the Bible that describes the lowering of heads and of bodies in worship. Why? Simply, we, we have defined it already. Worship literally means to fall down, to bow down. So let me show you some verses in the Old Testament so that you will be convinced. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 8, Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 3, When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord. 
saying, For he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Psalm 95, verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Can you see? Many verses in the Bible that shows us that worship involves a lowering of self and a bowing towards someone who is much higher. Now, I grant you that this is one expression of worship. It's not the only one. But I find it odd because today, many times, all of us, are, our heads are all lifted up when we're worshipping the Lord. Is it not so? Yeah? And it's almost like quite an opposite to, to what the Bible has described. Uh, some of you might look at this and say, okay, but it's all Old Testament. So maybe we can look at what New Testament worship is. Luke chapter 5, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw what Jesus had done, he fell down at Jesus' knees. Revelations chapter 1, and rightly so, all in Revelations. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Revelations 5 verse 8. All the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Revelations chapter 7 verse 1. Again, the angels and the living creatures and the elders, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Do you remember the musical called The King and I? There was a, there's an interesting scene in there where the king was talking to the tutor, right, or the English teacher. And he said this, in this country, no one's head can be higher than the king. And he was very cheeky, right? He put himself on the floor and looked at her. And then she had to put herself also on the floor so that her head will be lower than the king's head. I mean, we can laugh at this and say that it's rather comical. But you see, in countries where they have kings, they revere the king, they honor the king, they worship the king, they lower themselves beneath the king. What's the point I'm trying to share here with you? I believe worship is about humility, it's about submission. It's about lowering ourselves, submitting ourselves to, to, to God and His agenda. It's not just a time where we say, Oh Lord, you are good, you know, thank you very much, and that's it. It's beyond that. It's more than that. It's where we, we put ourselves under His jurisdiction. Now, to submit li literally means to line up under. It means to be placed under. It's a submission. Can you follow? So if God's will and agenda is His God's mission, then we are sub under His mission. We do what He tells us to do. Consider this one line. I was, I was looking at this and I said, is it easier to lift up than to bow down? Is it easier to lift up than to bow down? And I said, yeah, that's true, you know. It's easier to say, Lord, I lift you up. You are high and lifted up. You know why? When I do that, I don't have to change. I stay where I am. But you see, God is already high and lifted up. It is I who has to bow down and humble myself. That makes a lot of difference. 
And so I can walk into a, a service or I can have this posture within my heart and say, Lord, I lift you up. Why? But actually, in my own heart, there has been no change. There is no submission. I think I am okay and I stay here status quo. Is this why so many can worship God, inverted commas, worship God, and not be moved one inch to fulfill His purposes? Is this the reason why we can have worship, service, encounter after encounter and not be moved one inch to fulfill His purposes? We just keep lifting it up, Lord. But we refuse to bow. And that's not worship. Worship involves submission and humility. The fifth thing I see about worship through this passage is that worship is about being real and being open. You know, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, they come into the house, they fell down, they worship Jesus, and then opening their treasures. Now we know physically, they carried boxes, receptacles, that contained very important things and expensive items. But as I look at these words, opening their treasures, I remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He says, But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This gives us a hint that if you want to look at treasures, there's an indication of our hearts. So if we are wanting to learn about worship here, does it mean that when we open up our treasures, we are really opening up our hearts before the Lord. Oh, this is scary. That in worship, we are coming before the Lord and we are saying, Lord, this is it. I cannot bluff you, you know. I mean, I can have all the outward signs very nicely done. You know? I can choreograph it so beautifully. I can, I can even shed a few tears. But it's not the outside, you know. When it's worship, it's being real, it's being honest, it's being open. When I'm before Him, it is a bearing of all. And so I put it this way, in worship, we can be comfortable to present the real you before God. Anyone, any one of you just looking at this screen feel totally uncomfortable? But that's the real us. We've got typo errors in our lives. Can you see this? But me being a person that looks into detail after detail, you know, I would like to correct this because I want to give the best to God. You see that? But in worship, it's the real you. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well that the Lord is now seeking people who would worship Him. How? In spirit and in truth. Now, there are lots of interpretation about this, but let me share with you my thought. What does it mean to worship in spirit? See, God is spirit, so we must worship Him with our spirits. And that's real, that's us. Are you following? That, that's us. You, you cannot bluff your spirit one. That's the real you in there. So when spirit connects with spirit, that's where worship happens. You can't hide anything. You come clean. 
That's why Isaiah, the moment he comes into the presence of God, presence of God he goes, Whoa, am I? I'm a man of unclean lips. I mean, that's how we should be, you understand? When we come into the presence of God, we're going, God, this is it, you know, I mean, this is me. Is that okay? That's what it means to worship God in spirit. To worship God in truth means that there's, there's no deceit. To worship God in truth doesn't mean you must get it everything correct according to doctrine, according to scripture. It does not mean that. You are truthfully coming to God. You're pouring everything out. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to be vulnerable. This is worship. Jesus had very strong words to, with, uh, uh, for the Pharisees. He says, you guys are outside uh, very nicely. In Hokkien, uh, it's ho kwan. But Alright, you are like whitewashed tombs. Inside, full of skeletons and bones. So that's not worship, but they perfected worship as an art. Worship about, is about being real and being open with God. Why? Because worship is relationship. God wants to know us and God wants us to know Him. He, he doesn't want our performance. He wants our hearts. He wants to real you. If there's anything you can take out from this evening's session, I pray that, you know, as you get back, that you will be so real before the Lord to posture and say, Lord, this is it. This is me. And God will probably look at you and say, I know. That's why you need Jesus. We can't shock Him. We can't surprise Him. And the next time you, you sing or next time you do your things and, and you're doing for the glory and the worship of God, be real, be authentic. Don't do it for someone else to see. Look at David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He was willing to put on the garment of a priest, a linen ephod. He stripped himself of his kingly position in that sense. And he would just dance with all his might. His wife looked at him and said, So terrible, so disrespectful. What would people think? And she was judged for that comment. And David actually said, look, this is for God. This is my worship. This is how I feel. I mean, hello. I would be even more undignified if I have to be. So if this Sunday you're going to dance in front of everyone, it's okay. Just don't knock your hand onto your pastor's face. That will not be nice. The next thing is that worship is about offering and sacrifice. They offered Jesus gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were gifts. Another word would be offerings. It would be a sacrifice because they were ready, they were willing to part with something that they considered very precious. These were not cheap things. Not only that, they considered Jesus worthy to receive their best. They revered Jesus enough to give their best. Now in the Bible, there are many, many other examples, one of which just now I said we we're going to look at Abraham. And Abraham's act of worship in his sacrifice of Isaac, if you study this story, it would show you other aspects. that involves grace, 
Worship is grace. Worship involves faith. Worship will bring you to obedience. Worship involves work. Worship involves submission as we spoke about just now. And worship involves sacrifice. And finally, you see that worship is also a response to the fear of the Lord. See, if we don't understand these teachings, we miss it. We make it into some emotional experience. It's not. Abraham gave everything. Abraham feared the Lord. That's what the Bible says. The angel of the Lord stopped Abraham as he lifted up that knife. And he said to Abraham, Now I know that you fear God. That's what pushed him to do all these things. Fear of the Lord. We don't hear too much about that these days. Look at David's example. When the plague stopped and he wanted to give an offering, and he determined that place around us, said, look, king, I'm willing to give this to you, this whole piece of land. And David says, no, I will surely buy it from you for a price. I will not give anything to the Lord my God which costs me nothing. So friends, if it costs you something, you are beginning to worship. I wonder how much it costs us in our very narrow understanding of worship many times. For many, I think it costs nothing. The woman with the alabaster jar of spike nut, expensive perfume, willing to break it and pour it upon Jesus. See, when we worship Jesus, He is worthy of our very best and our all. And we see in these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that the worship of Jesus is really the worship of a king, the worship of God, and the worship of the Son of Man, but more specifically, His sacrifice in His death. See, gold is always associated with royalty. And so when a Magi brought gold, it was to confer upon him royalty. Next thing was frankincense, which is always associated with the service and an offering to God. You read Leviticus, plenty. Every time they bring up an offering, uh, um, the, the, the priests would tell them, put frankincense on it because it's going to be part of your sacrifice and your offering to God. Frankincense is also stored in the sanctuary, as we are told in Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 5. Myrrh is a very odd gift to give to a baby. We're celebrating the birth of a child, a birth of life. And yet myrrh is usually associated with the anointing of men, usually at a time of preparation for burial. But you and I know the story that this baby who is born king, who comes as our God in the form of man will one day die for all our sins. The lamb who will be slain even from the foundations of the world. And so worship is offering and worship is sacrifice. All that we have came from Him in the first place. And so when we worship in our giving, when we worship in our tithes, in our offerings, when we worship in our, in our, in our giving up of things, 
of our time, of our treasures, all that is worship. And I ask you tonight, what do you consider precious? What are your treasures? What are your treasures? Are you willing to give some of these up for the worship of Jesus? And finally, the seventh aspect is that worship is about transformation. Worship changes us. Amen? And in this verse 12 in Matthew chapter 2, being warned in the dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed to their own country by another way. After they met Jesus, they returned by another way. Now this word another, there are two Greek words that would translate another. One is heteros, which means different. The other is alos, which means the same but different. <laughs> okay, all right. That means it's of a, of a different, uh, it's the same nature but in, in a, in a, in a, by a different root of a different composition. So I look at this and I say, well, that's true. The Magi had to still go back to their country. They still had to make a travel, right? So it's still the same. They still have to encounter possible threats or dangers along the way. It's the same. They did not suddenly, after meeting Jesus, they get teleported back to the country. Boom. And I looked at this and I said, is it true? that we can be in the best time of worship, whether singing or in our own quiet time or having an encounter with God. And when we open our eyes, all our problems are still there. Nothing has changed, right? Or your situations just disappear. No, right? They're all still there. What has changed? We approach it by another way. Amen? You see, that's what worship does for us. Our worship of Jesus changes our perspectives. That if we have a problem in a relationship, our worship of Jesus continues in the way we will look at solutions now to this relationship. That where before we found it really difficult to forgive or even to, to bear with this person, but because we want to keep worshipping Jesus, you will keep doing as He tells you. You may have a challenge in a situation, but you know, because you want to worship Jesus, you will do your very best as unto the Lord. You see, nothing has changed, but our perspective has. That's what worship does for us. And that's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's worship. In all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that's worship. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, that's worship. And whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That's worship. When we worship Jesus in the true sense of the word of worship, we carry that worship experience into all our situations. We don't go by King Herod's way anymore. We go by King Jesus' way. And Moses said the same thing to the people of Israel. He says, look, today I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. 
But I give you a clue. Lah. Choose life. So in our lives, in our situations, there are always option A and option B. One will lead to life and one will lead to death. Let me give you a hint tonight, my friend. Choose life. And I tell people, it's not that we do not want to choose life. My, question, my point to you is that if we do not intentionally choose life, we can unintentionally choose death. Is that good? So you have to determine within your hearts, I will always choose life. That's the worship of Jesus because He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. The way of the King leads to life. The way of the kingdom is about abundant life. The worship of the King will always lead to life. Amen? And as you worship the King in, in every situation and in every relationship, what you're doing is that you are sowing and declaring life. See, only worship can keep you in this perspective. Worship is not just one song or two songs that will just tickle your heart and say, oh, thank you, it's so nice after that. I feel so good already. Well, thank God you feel that way. But if it does not change your perspective, it does not bring you by another way, then perhaps that worship might not have gone deep enough. And so, seven aspects through Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And I ask you, where's the man? The Magi said, where is he? We have seen the star. We have come to worship him. Where's, where's the band? Where, where's the smoke machine? Where are the lights? Don't have. Only one follow spot called a star. Zoom on Jesus. That's all they had. I think, friends, we have to break out of this commercial worship that we have bought into. I'm not saying don't sing anymore. I'm not saying don't listen to your CDs. Praise God for such creative writers and expression. But might that only be one part of your worship of Jesus? Worship is not about us. Worship is always about Jesus, who is God and King. And so friends, I encourage you, don't let your worship be limited to your raising of your hands or the songs you sing or how tight the band is or how the hall is brightly or dimly lit, the ambience that gives you the goosebumps. Don't fight over all that. I think we are wasting too much time fighting over whether we should raise hands or not raise hands. And don't let it just stay in there and be happy with the great dynamics and the emotional stirrings and miss the extensions into your kingdom assignment. When you raise your children for the kingdom's purposes, do you know that's worship? When you look after aged or sick parents, do you know that's worship? When you care for or pray for someone who's down and out, that's worship. When you run or establish a business with kingdom principles that will touch not just your employees, but also their families and their children, do you know that's worship? When you stand for the truth and make a difference and not compromise, do you know that's worship? When you study the word and you lift the word, do you know that's worship? When you risk being ridiculed because you will not give up Jesus, do you know that's worship? When you fellowship with others and you bring grace and hope, that's worship. When you go about fulfilling your kingdom assignment, 
that's worship. And when you do anything for the name and the sake of Jesus, that is worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you once again, Lord, for Jesus. And Lord, we just declare you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. Forgive us, Lord, for the times where we have reduced worship to an emotion, to a nice time that just makes us feel a little bit better. Help us to understand, Lord, the depth of what true worship really is. So lead us even after this, Lord, as we express our hearts of worship unto you. Thank you, Lord. Receive this, Lord, for you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.